Kia ora katoa. Welcome to The Hoon, where co-host Peter Bale and I go around the week's news in geopolitics and Aotearoa's political economy with a whole bunch of experts, academics and politicians, all to understand our worlds better and have some fun. Tēnā koutou katoa and welcome to The Hoon. I am Bernard Hickey and from the very hot place of Spain, we have co-host Peter Bale. Peter, it's great to see you. Good morning, Bernard. I mean, good afternoon to you, but I'm, it's, I've just got up, got my coffee, haven't got the gin and tonic again. And as you pointed out, I've got possibly the best shirt we've had so far on the show, which is the, I would say it's either crayfish or langoustine. Because it's from Europe, it can't be um, lobster, so it's more langoustine. That's right. I think it's well. No, I think it might actually be a crayfish, but or what we think of in New Zealand is a crayfish, and everybody else are called lobsters. Except, of course, we know lobsters have the pincers. But I think we need a deep analysis of the of the lobster versus crayfish debate. Have you managed to do a deep analysis with one on your plate yet? Oh, yes, I have. I had well. Funny enough, in Tangier the other day in Morocco, um, where I popped across just for to get some carpet, as it were, um, literally two of them, in fact. I had uh, grilled langoustine um, in a, in, from a sort of street Ooh. market, and it was bloody delicious. It was p- probably the best meal I had over there. It was literally wow. in the street. It was lovely. Well, not, you know, it was on a plate. But grilled. So it had some sort of, you know, spicy, spicy it things. Did have, it did have a little bit, little some spicy things in it, but it was basically just delicious, fresh seafood from the Atlantic slash Mediterranean, from the Straits of Gibraltar, more or less. Or the Estrecho, as they call it here. Yeah. <laughs> not, not the so they try not to mention Gibraltar too often, ah. which, of course, as we know, it is actually Jebel al Tariq, which is the mountain of Tariq. Ah. So it's actually a, uh, an Arabic name anglicized into Gibraltar. And tell us about the weather. You know, got to talk about the weather because the weather is, you know, it's the thing we are all talking about all the time, forever. Uh, and yeah. I hear there's been new records in Spain. Well, it's been the driest April on record, and Spain just yesterday announced uh, 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 several billion dollars in emergency aid to farmers. They've also said that rubbish workers and uh, street vendors and people do not have to work if the uh, Met Office here um, warns of high temperatures, because that um, that follows the death of a, of a of a delivery person and a street sweeper uh, in high temperatures. And it is quite remarkable. I mean, it was it was twenty nine degrees here last yesterday, which is four degrees above the average. Although I did notice that um, it was it was more than thirty this time last year. So April has been incredibly dry. I've also noticed where I am. There's an amazing filled in lake that Franco filled in in nineteen fifty three to destroy one of the biggest wetlands in Europe, and it's being allowed to recover. But a paella farm, paella rice farm, has been converted into normal agriculture because there's not enough water to sustain it. Oh, wow. So this special type of rice for paella? Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. Um, it's like arborio rice, but you, you wouldn't use arborio rice for a paella. You only use genuine, authentic paella rice for a paella from Spain. Wow. So yeah. um, that's another sign that the weather is is weird all over the place. And right now, you'll be lucky, you'll be happy to know that for the last two weeks in Auckland, we have had inundations. And um, it got down to eight or nine degrees here last night. We had a, a southerly uh, switch as well. And mm. another one of these, it wasn't quite as bad as the Auckland anniversary weekend event, but there were plenty of people flooded out. And yet again, 
concerns about uh, you know what's going to happen with um, and and the robustness of infrastructure again, Bernard. When it, it, oh, it, again, yeah. you know, looked as though drains weren't necessarily working properly. But you know, when you say you know, watching it from here, um, I was alarmed having having had my neighbours you know mm. cliff fall into the sea rather alarmingly during just in hail rather than Gabriel. You know, the warning to people who've had cliff top damage already that it was going to get worse. And also, I, I see. Uh, our old friend Michael Field was posting a, a global weather survey that shows another one hitting next week coming down the West Coast, which will not be very good news for people in uh, Pihar and places like that that are, that are still not recovered oh, on the yeah. West Coast, let alone Northland. So, you know, I mean, what's that for this year so far? Oh, it's just awful. And whenever we look at a map of New Zealand, it seems to have a big swathe of blue with splashes of red coming down from the Central Pacific, all that hot water up there turning into moisture and then doing doing mm. the whole atmospheric river coming on down. And it's still coming. It's been it's coming since the end of January. We're well into May. Yeah, but Bernard, I think we, we without without turning correlation into causality, we we do know that this only this shit started when you arrived in Auckland. It's my fault. That's true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well there's a there's a yeah. definite correlation there, but we don't we don't do correlation and causality here. We did move from Wellington to Auckland for the weather, and then it has mm. basically rained for three and a half months. So how are things going in New Zealand? I, I wrote a piece for North and South, the next issue. Not, it's, it hasn't been published yet. Yesterday, about whether foreign policy under, under Hipkins has, had shifted. And it seems to me it has slightly, sort of almost imperceptibly, but he hasn't been invited to China in the same way that, that Jacinda Ardern was, or he hasn't prioritised that trip. Uh, and he's and he's of course told Nanaya Mahuta he wants to see her at quotes out and about, whatever that means. But he is managing to go to Papua New Guinea. Yeah, well, that's the news this week, I suppose, that um, he's been invited by Joe Biden and the other members of the Quad to Papua New Guinea, where mm. it seems America is going to sign a de- defence pact with Papua New Guinea which has surprised a few people because up until the last year or so, Papua New Guinea has been flirting with China. And um, mm. one of the uh, great signs from the, when I think one of the last apex was this uh, extraordinary motorway that had been built by the Chinese. And That's for the Maseratis that were bought for, for APEC, for the APEC summit. Yeah, that's right. And so that's a big, big deal. And, you know, whenever Joe Biden comes to our neck of the woods, that's, that's interesting. Um, Chris Hipkins going to meet him at a, what is effectively a quad type meeting, you know, one of these defense type meetings isn't going to be welcomed by China. And uh, uh, certainly, you're right, I think he, he has a slightly tougher line on China than maybe Jacinda Ardern, although mm. I had noticed in the last year or so, Ardern's tone on China had toughened up. Yes, the, the, more, assertive, the more assertive thing about China, yes, that's true. Yeah, and we've got to know that there are lots of things happening that we don't know about, in particular briefings from GCSB and SIS. Mm to the Prime Minister, who right, is right at the heart of that. Now, Chris Hipkins was you know, one of the three or four people running the government anyway, so he would have had those briefings as well. And it is, it is quite noticeable, the difference in tone between the Labour government and, of course, the national opposition, who are still very positive about um, building relations with China and have been connected to China in various ways, in particular, uh, uh, trips and, of course, mm. the significant numbers of individuals and organisations connected to the United Front, the Chinese government-driven uh, um, foreign influence program, and 
that I think may be one of the things that blows up in the election campaign if the mm. government wants to to push it hard because National is the one that's out of line with other conservative parties. Well, what does what does Jerry Brownlee actually think? Does he think anything? I mean, I, I was I was really struck. In fact, I think I put him in the second to last paragraph because he sort of pipes up, says various kind of John Key-ish things about the need to be closer to China and, the, and, the, and even really stupid things about um, Xinjiang from time to time. Um, what is Jerry Brown's foreign policy? And would, would he actually be foreign, foreign minister or are we going to see David Seymour going in there because he's so incredibly experienced on international matters? Yeah, no, I think Seymour wants to stay at home and have a good old crack at economic policy. And he's, I suspect, hoping that if he gets a very, very high share of the vote, he might get some sort of associate finance mm. minister mm. role and and somewhere in cabinet because the real game as we saw when act were with national in 2008 to 2011 rodney hyde got very involved in um creating the super city and uh you know really did a lot of things now in the end he flamed out but i think david seymour wants to stay at home and do that jerry brownlee i think you're right um he's currently the foreign affairs uh, spokesperson, but he has put his foot in it a few times, and he definitely mm. would not be appreciated by our Five Eyes partners. He is seen as uh, a bit too friendly to China, and um, I think there would be a few others, uh, Todd McClay, perhaps, um, who'd, who'd maybe have a look at that role if, if Jerry didn't get it. And uh, I think it all depends, too, on on the strength of Christopher Luxon post-election. If it's a very clear win, if they do win, then um, he has the power to be a bit more assertive. And there is mm. always the chance that he does it himself. It's been a while since we've had a prime minister doubling up as a foreign minister, but mm. uh, it wouldn't surprise me if that's that's where um, Christopher Luxon uh, finds himself. You, you might remember I wrote a piece, I'm sure you read it, read every word of it for North and South about this, actually, when the, the new history of the New Zealand foreign ministry came out. I find it hard to call it MFAT, which just sounds like something you take to lose some weight. But people inside the foreign ministry were very um, admiring, for, and probably the only people who were actually, of um, Winston Peters, because he actually got a sub substantial uh, increases in the foreign affairs budget. But people just also remember Norman Kirk you know, as a very effective prime minister and, and, and supporter of it. I think that one of the things, Bernard, and I'd love to explore this sometime, is New Zealand's multilateral role, because it's our old friend Robert Patman often talks about the potential of New Zealand to be stronger on the, in a multilateral world, you know, combining with other smaller countries. And Jacinda Ardern did seem to be very committed to that. And I don't see any signal that Chris Hipkins is committed to that. Not as much. I mean, he's got his hands full with various crises here. I think Christopher Luxon, if he does take something up like that, would be interested in going overseas a lot. He said a few weeks ago that he, one of his key things, if they do, if they do win, is basically to send a whole bunch of ministers out on exploration mm. missions to promote New Zealand's exports. He talked a lot about hustle. You know, there's going to be yeah. a lot of hustling going on. We're going to going out there and, Dr and dressing up as kiwi fruits and the like. Yeah. That's right. Actually, actually, Jerry Brownlee would look very good in a kiwi fruit suit, I think. Yeah. Or maybe, um, you know, maybe someone from Te Pāti Māori could become mm. foreign minister. Um, this was the news this week. Yeah, tell us, what's, what's that all about? I mean, we talked last week, Bernard, about whether Te Pāti Māori was, in a sense, replacing the, the strength of the Māori caucus inside Labour. And this, but so, so what's, what's Christopher Luxon up to with the Te Pāti Māori? Yeah, this was a very strong comment. He had a full-on, you know, press conference, press release coming out and saying, 
We've decided that we're ruling out forming any sort of um, governing arrangement with Te Pāti Māori. And there was no great demand for it. You know, mm. most people who've been following MMP for 20 years or 30 years or so take the view that it's expected that there's going to be some sort of negotiation after an election. It's only the last term, this current term, which has seen one party able to govern on its own. No one expects that Labour or National would be able to govern alone again. The polls are certainly saying that Te Pāti Māori have the ability to choose who's the government. Mm. And I think it surprised a few people that he'd come out so strongly and said, we want nothing to do with Te Pāti Māori, which uh, he argued was because they were quite they were quite different party to when National partnered with Te Pāti Māori mm -hmm. for three terms. And it's true, they've got different leadership and um, they had... Is, is it that they're more rad radical from his point of view, Bernard? Or, is, it, or yeah. is this actually also an appeal to some of the darker sides of sentiment that live inside National or National voters? Yeah, I think it's unfortunate the strong view he's taken. He's been accused of dog whistling on uh, mm. this issue of, you know, iwi kiwi co-governance, which and it was very interesting to hear Ben Thomas, the centre-righty political commentator mm. who's on the spin-off, point out that the last time that National took this very sceptical view about co-governance, about, you know, iwi having, you know, more vo more votes than other people somehow, mm. this wasn't democratic, that iwi were, you know, having more power than they should, um, that was Don Brash. And his yep. Ariwa speech was... And that, that, that went well. Yeah, that's right. And I think that's one of the risks for Christopher Luxon is that in coming down so strongly against uh, Te Pāti Māori, talking about, you know, one man, one vote, uh, he risks painting himself as an extremist, as someone who isn't nimble. And one of the reasons he was voted in by his caucus is that they saw him as John Key version 2.0. And Key was much nimbler mm. on his feet in dealing with these sorts of issues. He didn't rule people in or out. It was only at the end in 2011 and 14 from memory that he ruled out uh, Winston Peters. And even then, uh, Bill English didn't rule him out. And he was able to work with people. He, J John Key also tapped the party to the centre before they got back into power with uh, in 2008. And that's not the impression I get from Christopher Luxon. If anything, he's dragging the party of the centre to the right. Mm. Now, you do that when you're in trouble and you need to shore up your base and make sure you don't get walloped by a, a party even further on the right. But he doesn't need to do that. I mean, ACT have got that. Um, there's a good 10, 11 percentage points with ACT. He needs to be foraging around in the middle to win an election, mm. which is clearly close. We've got two more polls this week. Uh, one from Curia, which is the David Farrar poll, which uh, even though he's obviously connected to the National Party, there's no suggestion that the poll itself is a problem. Mm. And we've also seen, heard from Talbot Mills, which is the Labour Party pollster, uh, its corporate poll showing that it is neck and neck. It really is... Mm. Um, Centre-right versus centre-left, Green Labour versus National Act, they're both on about 30, 33, 34 for National Labour, 10 each for Greens and ACT. And those four or five seats that Te Pāti Māori are very expected to get will be the decider. Now, there is the remote prospect that um, the Opportunities Party gets in. But mm. I, I must say, this was the week when we learned that 
Christopher Luxon, I think, is not quite as nimble and able to to sway with the breeze in the way that John Key was. Well, speaking of swaying with the breeze, do you think do you think um, uh, Winston Peters needs to do a waka jump to um, to party Maori? You know, it would be quite that would be entertaining because uh, that would be <laughs> if that happens, I will be breaking out the popcorn because that will be entertaining. Bernard, one one question on those polls: Do polls show, or do they do they ever ask this question about people's attitudes to? Uh, Maoridom and the and the rise of Maoridom and the you know actually the implementation of the you know UN agreements on indigenous people which to some extent Chris Hipkins is backtracking from. Yeah, I am not sure from the polling and the focus grouping how effective it is. I suspect mm. it's very situational, and also the people who are saying these sorts of things, the groundswellers, if you like, they're not yeah. in the middle. And if you know that in an MP election, the way you win is to win the median mm. voters. Mm. And one of the things you've got to be wary of if you're an opposition party is being painted as too changey, too yeah. extremist. And I think that's where Chris Hipkins is going to go in this election campaign. You've already seen it this week. Speeches Absolutely. from Grant Robertson saying that National have to say what they'd cut you know, which budget are they going to slash to give mm. us the tax cuts and all these other things? So I think that's where we're headed. Yeah, interesting. I just I just note, Bernard, that Brett Tamahori, our old friend on the pod, and a couple of other people are pointing out that, you know, that this really is a dog whistle and it's kind of going off and, and the dogs, you know, as usual with dog whistles, only the dogs can hear it, but they know it when they hear it. Speaking yeah, of right. speaking of focus groups, there's our there's fabulous uh, Professor Robert Patman. Good afternoon. Ah, yes. Well, we've got our own focus group of three here, haven't we? It's very good. Exactly, exactly, <laughs> exactly. It's, and, and he's already, I can see he's got gin in that plastic bottle of his, his there, and he's off He's off to the races. Yeah, well, can't beat a gin and tonic, can you? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Cheers to you, um, uh, Robert. Great to see you. Cheers. Good to see you guys. I'm on, I'm on the coffee, Robert. How are you? So, Victory Day this week in Russia was a little bit muted. Yes, you could say that with one tank being present and... Uh, yeah, one, one World War II tank. Yeah, about eighty years of age, wasn't it? Exactly. So, what do you, what do you make of it all? And, and uh, the, the thing I found so extraordinary with it was Putin's ability. I mean, we all know that he's, uh, you know, cynicism is, is his defining characteristic. This ability to yet again equate uh, war with Ukraine as a war with Nazis. Yes, it's the it's the victimhood that uh, many so called populist leaders pursue. Although I, I hesitate to call. Putin a populist leader because he's an authoritarian leader. But it, it was extraordinary. And the fact that he cannot seem to absorb the point that the world is not against him because Russia is Russia, but because Russia mm. has invaded neighboring Ukraine. Uh, it's a fundamental breach of international law. But there was an interesting development this week and something of a game changer. The British have done yeah. something which the Americans have declined to do, which is to provide what's called Shadow Storm cruise missiles. They provided these cruise missiles, which have a stealth capability. Mm. That is, they fly at tree treetop level, and they cannot be easily detected by radar. Mm. Now, they, they have given the Ukraine... By, they've already transferred them, apparently, and they're still transferring them, but this will give the Ukrainian counteroffensive, when it looms, or even before the counteroffensive, a capability to hit the Russians anywhere in occupied Ukraine, something mm. they haven't had before. And, of course, I think Crimea in particular will be in the crosshairs. It, it's an interesting development, and uh, the British do not seem to be, because they're in a qualitatively different position to the Americans, 
uh, in the sense that if the American made made this sort of move, it might be seen as more provocative than if the Brits do it. Mm. But mm. it's an interesting development. It's really going to be interesting to see if they launch it during the Eurovision Song Contest. <laughs> that, Maybe that's the secret signal. The Ukrainian singers will be up there right now. It's time to go. Well, at the moment, so a lot of commentators in the last 24 hours, and you guys must have noticed this claim the counteroffensive has already begun. Mm. Uh, so watch this space. Apparently, there's some very alarmed Russian military journalists reporting about mm. uh, declining Russian position around Bakhmut. So, mm. yeah, I mean, it, it's a very interesting situation. And I saw also that um, the Wagner guy, Grigory Prigozhin, mm. came out with this weird sort of statement saying, I'm out of here unless you give me the ammunition. You know, you yeah. guys are hopeless. I couldn't understand the Russian, of course, but he looked very serious about it. Oh, it was full of expletives. He also, one of the videos he recorded had, unfortunately, a series of dead Wagner troops in the background. Ooh, yeah. mm. He was furious and uh, he singled out several of Putin's the defence minister, Shoigo, in particular, mm. uh, but another senior official as well. And uh, it's quite clear that Prigozhin um, believes he's got some leverage on the Putin regime. So far, until recently, he seemed to be operating with Putin's blessing. I'm just wondering now whether Prigozhin is actually sensing blood in terms of he's now in a position to actually present himself as an alternative to Putin. He actually described oh. Putin as happy grandfather well it's unclear it's it's unclear whether he was referring to putin but it was close enough and also he uh, well to... many russians took it to be quite rude exactly and and as a complete asshole which is i think is absolutely yeah. correct he's getting bolder and bolder there's a medusa story from the the excellent medusa uh, website which is uh, operating from the baltics because it can't operate inside russia any, anymore that the kremlin is looking to uh, rein in Prigozhin, so you know he might be yeah. wise not to go to, go near too many too many high windows. <laughs> windows, <laughs> yeah. It's the it's the sliding doors and the open windows you've got to be careful about. And the and tea, and the tea. That's right. <laughs> Come for a cup of tea with me on the fifteenth floor. They get you one way or the other that way. <laughs> tea with the tea or the window. <laughs> or the underpants. I think the only way you've got to be careful with your underpants. So I go completely commando now to um to avoid oh. um, you know. <laughs> Anybody putting Novichok in my underpants, but Robert, we're not not to turn you too much into an armchair general. Although I think what Bernard and I need is a small sandpit with um, various, you know, uh, toy tanks and things on them to um, to represent the forces. But would you imagine, uh, based on your reading of people like you know the, of the various defence analysts, that the that the likelihood of a Ukrainian counteroffensive is to, to try to cut off to get that spit that extends out towards Crimea? to kind of cut off Crimea and cut off the Russian troops with it. Yes, there's also unconfirmed reports that Ukrainian troops are moving in large numbers towards Belgorod mm. on the Ukrainian border with Russia, which suggests they may be sweeping around behind the Russian position and may perhaps to encircle them. But it's all speculation at the moment. We don't know how, you know, these are unconfirmed reports. I agree with you, though, Peter. I personally think in some shape or form, Crimea is going to be targeted in this counteroffensive. Mm, mm. Yeah, I think if they're going to Belgorod though, or around that way and cross into, into actual Russian territory, then we're in a whole other game too. Oh, I don't think oh, they're boy. going to do that. I, I, I think mm. it's more to try to cut the Russian lines of easy withdrawal for Russian troops. Mm -hmm. uh, the the other thing we have to go to, quite frankly, if they lose Crimea, the Russian if they if Russia loses Crimea, 
I think Putin is basically toast. I mean, I don't mm. think he can survive that at all. Now, I'm just jumping back across the uh, Atlantic, uh, Robert. Um, in the yeah. last week or so, there's been quite a an interesting speech by the US Secretary of State in which he has given a, a quite different view of how the world should be uh, with America and in particular the American sphere, different from what you we would have come to know as the Washington Consensus. Mm. So for a good 30 years post-Cold War, the idea was that we'd have an opening up of trade, that um, globalization, free markets would lift everyone's tide and everyone's boats would rise and eventually everyone would become good, friendly Democrats and democratic. And even up until, you know, five or six years ago uh, with uh, President Obama, that was still pretty much in force. Now that we've got this clash between the United States and China with what's happened in Ukraine, America seems a bit more focused on A, um, thinking a lot more about its competition with China, but B, using what they call industrial policy, effectively providing mm. subsidies for its local firms, particularly at the moment around the green industrial revolution, um, moving towards renewable energy, also investing in their own chip makers, these sorts yep. of things. What did you make about this debate, which essentially said the Washington consensus is dead, now it's new green industrial policy. What did you make of this big shift? It's an interesting development. And Jake Sullivan, I think, is the person, rather than the Secretary of State, who oh, made the yes. announcement at Brookings, I think, the Brookings Institution. And there's definitely a shift going on, which began um, in the second year of the Biden administration with the passing of two important pieces of legislation, the CHIPS legislation, which provides about $52 billion in terms of uh, subsidies uh, to help American companies develop semiconductors. Uh, uh, that's a huge subsidy, which apparently many companies have taken up. Um, mm. And in addition, there's the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, which provides tax credits for companies which are going in the direction of clean energy. And that also apparently is being taken up to a much greater degree than the administration anticipated. So there are two interesting developments. I think you're right. I think that Biden has shown that he's something more of an economic nationalist than some of his previous presidents, with the exception, of course, of Donald Trump. Um, it's an interesting development. And um, I, I don't think I think the Americans could be disappointed, however, uh, because They've done very well out of globalization. If you mm. look at the most recent data, out of the top 50 and largest, the largest 50 companies in the world, I'll get there in a minute, 32 of them are American. Mm. And they've done very nicely, thank you, out of globalization. And the other thing here is I'm not sure globalization can be controlled by the United States. I understand America wanted to get more control of their economy, but that actually is quite bad news. If America is sort of trying to sort of dictate a uh, new form of industrial economics on a, a global basis and, and, and sort of trying to decouple from China. I'm not sure that's possible. Jake Sullivan denied that when he was questioned, was the United States decoupling? He said, no, we describe this new strategy as de-risking. But, you know, it's, it's a bit worrying because we were hoping, I mean, countries like New Zealand were hoping that the Biden administration might take America into the Comprehensive and Trans-Pacific Partnership 
and also it would start providing much needed support for the WTO, which was under siege from the mm. Trump administration. Mm. And I think that what these developments have signaled is that uh, the United States is going to continue to be an outlier. I mean, let's be quite clear about this. These moves smack of American exceptionalism. Absolutely. America has not joined the International Criminal Court. You know, it has all the privileges of being a veto-wielding member of the Security Council. I think it could be in for a bit of a shock because in the sense that I don't think you can no more deglobalize than you can de-industrialize. And I I think Mm. myself that America seems to be assuming here it can call the shots economically by having a much more national emphasis and everyone else has to go along with it. Well, I don't think there's anything wrong with America making itself less vulnerable but I think it's going to continue to need the rest of the world. You only have to look at the top-performing American companies. They are very closely interwoven with the global market economy, and I, I don't think there's going to be too much decoupling. Well, I think, Robert, we're also going to see very quickly this become a gigantic domestic issue in the United States as soon as next week with the with the um, the spending limit, um, the d- debate over the spending limit. And, of course, we had our old friend Donald Trump this week make an intervention suggesting that default was the better option than increasing the spending limit. And one of the things that push, is pushing this, the government spending limit is this over overtake up of the Inflation Reduction Act. But that's very rich coming from Mr. Trump, isn't it? Because mm. after mm. all, uh, uh, the American debt um, dramatically increased under his watch. Because he cut taxes for companies. Yeah, I mean, that's, yeah. that's an extraordinary hypocrisy on his part. By the way, that was a sensational appearance on CNN, wasn't it? Oh. Yeah, it was. I mean, his his. But I loved his line about you know he was he was challenged as to why he hadn't done had, hadn't done this when he was president. He said, "Well, I'm not president anymore." <laughs> you know, he's just it is just as you say hypocrisy. Well, yes, but I mean, I was just struck by the number of um, how should I put it? He was he was economical with the truth from the beginning to the end mm-hmm. in that interview, and. Uh, it's just as well it wasn't recorded because I think it wouldn't be a question of fact checking, but it would have been actually trying to identify any facts at all. <laughs> That's right. Excuse me, Robert. I do the jokes here, right? I mean, it was extraordinary, an extraordinary 72 minute exercise in rhetoric. And it gave him a platform, unfortunately, to say things like, um, and it must be destabilizing, given that he has a higher approval rating than Biden right now, shockingly. And uh, he was saying things like, uh, well, you know, I'd get in and stop this war in Ukraine immediately. You know, I, I'm not going to support the Ukrainians. <laughs> oh, yes, that was, a, I mean, that, that had overtones of his pledge in 2016 on the campaign trail that if he elected president, he would defeat ISIS within 24 hours. Mm-hmm. When he was challenged yeah. about that by a Los Angeles Times journalist, he responded that he would love to divulge the information, but that would alert the enemy, which I thought was a nice <laughs> touch at the time. But, uh, you know, this this is pretend politics. Uh, this is not serious. But he could be seriously the the, the, yeah. the president within a couple of years. He could be, and that's probably you know we 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 discussed AUKUS recently. And New Zealand needs to think very hard whether it wants to be part mm. of an an enhanced security arrangement in which Mr. Trump may be leader of, um, along with the UK and Australia, mm. um, or perhaps Mr. DeSantos, because I think Mr. Trump's got some more legal problems looming. And uh, I, I'm not convinced he's going to make it. I mean, it's one thing to be on uh, a CNN um, town hall where much of the audience seemed to be predisposed to believe mm. everything he said. But it's quite another thing. I think it, it, there'll be a many Americans that are appalled by some of his claims, particularly his claim 
that he may well grant pardons to many of the people involved mm, mm. in the insurrection against the democratic outcome of the 2020 election in which eight people, eight Americans died. This is extraordinary. And I think uh, while there may be 40% of Americans, you know, happy to back him, I, I still think there'll be a majority who may feel very uneasy about Mr. Trump making it to the White House again. Mm. Here's hoping you're right, Robert. Thank you very much for coming on the show Thank again. You. Lovely to, to see Thanks, you. Robert. Thank Great you. And, you. Um, Thank you. And we'll see what happens the next week in Ukraine. Uh, I'd like to welcome onto the show Diana Crossan, who was the uh, retirement commissioner for some time and was one of the people, about 90 or so, who signed a letter this week saying that New Zealand needs some sort of wealth tax. Welcome on to the Hoon Diner. How are you? Um, very well, thank you, Bernard. But we didn't actually say that. Ah. What we said was we think that those of us who are financially comfortable could pay more tax. Mm. So you didn't necessarily say a wealth tax? No, no. We talked about um, the fact how do that... We, how do we define financial comfort, if not by the word wealth, Diana? No, no. We're not talking about a wealth tax. We're talking about all kinds of taxes. Ah, right. Oh, I see. Mm -hmm. so we were saying that uh, the your income tax, for example, could go up at the top end. We were carefully not stating which kind of tax, but saying that those of us who are financially comfortable are willing to pay more tax and think that New Zealand needs to have a more bigger tax take. Uh, we come lower than the average OECD in the of the countries. We want the services of uh, France and Scandinavia and uh, other countries who pay more tax at the top end. We weren't suggesting that everybody pay more tax. We were saying that we were in a position to pay more tax. But what is, what is the level, Diana, of um, what is the appropriate level? Well, 39% is the top range at the moment. But the, the issue, um, if you look internationally, <clears throat> excuse me, New Zealand pays something like thirty-two percent collects, sorry, thirty-two percent of GDP through the tax take. Mm -hmm. In Germany, it's thirty-eight percent. In Netherlands, it's forty percent. We collect one hundred and thirteen billion, and if we were to go to similar to Germany and. Netherlands, we would have another 20 billion ish. But Diana, one of the interesting things about our tax system is that we have quite a high um, consumption tax, which is very broadly applied. And when you look at our income taxes, um, they're not violently different to what other people pay. But the difference between us and these other OECD countries who have high levels of tax, better public services, more productivity, is that they do have some form of tax on increases in wealth and also also have taxes on well, estate taxes, uh, which we don't yeah. have. So ha yeah. how could New Zealand increase the, um, uh, the share of the economy, if you like, that is, that is taxed uh, without doing some sort of wealth tax? Well, it would. I think uh, what, all I was saying was the letter didn't say that. That was all because ah, we, yeah. we we were careful in saying that we because the people that signed it signed it to say that they could pay more tax and they weren't necessarily saying how that would be. So I'm not a tax expert, as you know. So I was happy to sign it and I'm happy to talk about the need, the inequality, the 
inequity, I suppose I should say. And the, you know, we want a clean rivers. We want a health system that where the waiting lists for those who can't afford to pay health uh, insurance is so long. And we want uh, equitable education. We know all the things we want. You know, I'm involved in several charities and we're always struggling to get people to help us, support us. And we it's fundamentally wish the government would be funding that. So we didn't go into the detail of which of the tax uh, possibilities there were. You know, we know that this you can't compare across the board because Australia, they don't start taxing people to, for till a certain mm. level. Uh, and we tax from day one. So there's all kinds of ways it could be cut to make it fairer, to make it and, and to bring in more dollars. Yeah, Diana, we 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 were in um we were talking about this uh, last time last week when I, or two weeks ago when I was in Oslo because I, you know, naturally you arrive in the country and twenty minutes later you're an expert. But the the minimum tax rate there is twenty two percent, and then it goes up quite steeply as far as as far as income goes. But it, it just seems you know that this whole thing with New Zealand not having a tax a tax free threshold does make it a bit of an outlier. And I wonder where you think economic growth stands in here because it seems to me that New Zealand has a kind of uh, there's a, there's a strong anti-growth mindset in New Zealand as well. That we we want these public services, but do we want actual economic growth as well, which also supports those services? Yes, it's that's uh, a tricky one, and that's what some of the people who've responded to the uh, letter talked about. And of course, this isn't an in isolation. You don't just raise the taxes in isolation. Um, so what we want is a joint-up policy that would look at issues like unintended consequences of raising this tax means there'd Mm. be less productivity. I mean, it's a complex area. What we were saying was, and what what we've been surprised about is that people have been ringing in to put their name to it. We've had, um, you know, Mm. we had just under 100 on the day, and now we've had in the first um, few hours 30 people ringing, ringing in and saying, how do I sign up? So we, we're concerned. New Zealanders are concerned uh, about the lack of the services that we have, and most of them aren't tax experts. So they're saying, would somebody please get on with this and look at all the complexities and know that it's not just about cutting taxes. Just finally, Diana, um, one of the pushbacks from others in response to the letter was, um, oh, that's fine. Uh, These people want to pay more tax. They should voluntarily do it. Mm. (laughs) What did you think of that? Oh, well, I I agreed with some of the other responders who said, you know, one of the people who was far wealthier than me said, you know, I do put my hand in my pocket. I do do have a philanthropic uh, foundation, but I, I want a fair system. And just because relying on me, to put my hand in my pocket to make the local ambulance work, for example, is crazy and it's unfair. And we're, we'll always need philanthropists. We'll always need lots of volunteers in New Zealand to make things work. We know that. But let's have a fairer tax system to make it work too. Uh, Diana Crossan. Diana, thank you very much um, for coming on to the Hoon. Lovely to see you and uh, see you thank again. Thank you so much, and, and, um We'd love to have you on again at some point uh, talking about these and other issues. Lovely to see you. Thank you. Okay. And we do, in fact, have a tax expert. Oh, yeah. No, we've got a, we've got a combo here. We've got uh, Terry Boucher on uh, the show this evening. Terry, lovely to see you and welcome to The Hoon. Well, I, wait, wait, wait a second, Bernard. I need, I need to make a declaration is that I, I rang Terry when I first came back to New Zealand to 
I haven't, I haven't engaged with him on this, but I rang him to ask his advice about how I could protect as much of my, you know, enormous global wealth uh, as possible. Ah, you haven't signed the letter, Peter. I, I haven't taken, I have, no, I haven't signed the letter and I don't intend to, but um, <laughs> I would be keener on finding out uh, a little bit of a lower tax environment in a sense. But ah. um, go, Terry, go ahead. Kia everyone. Um, thank you for uh, inviting me along. And actually, Peter has just touched on something which lies behind one of the reasons I signed that letter. And that is talking about the well-known principle of broad-based low rate. That mm. is something that has been mm. fundamental to the New Zealand tax system. And coincidentally, it is 30 years ago next week that I arrived in New Zealand. <laughs> So it's quite interesting to look back on that, um, with that. But it, that, weirdly, even though I'd already been working in tax for nearly 10 years, mm. the, it was only when I got to New Zealand that the sort of the concept of broad-based low rate was being espoused. And the intellectual mm. a- arena at that time was really very interesting of what was going on. It was, it was a fascinating introduction. And that is at the core of what I think a good system is, you broaden the base as far as possible, and then you can mm. lower the rates. And the classic example of that in our context, and worldwide actually, is GST. Because mm. we have a very broad GST um, system, and it means that our rate at 15% is relatively low. I mean, you go to Europe, you'll see 25%. The UK has a 20% VAT rate. So those countries that are often talked about that have... Um, uh, zero-rate foods, etc. There is a trade-off with that, that mm. other goods, you pay higher VAT. So the broad-based low-rate approach is fundamentally sound. And I don't think there's any tax advisor anywhere in New Zealand who would disagree with that. Now, how we broaden the base is where the fighting begins. And mm. that's where we come to the reports. Yeah, yeah. So this is one of the fascinating things here is that uh, this idea of broad-based low rate, you're right, is accepted by everyone, and we almost got there. We brought in the income tax system, which was broad-based and low rate, with few exceptions. That's there, and pretty much still intact. We brought in the GST system, which is broad-based and low rate, pretty much intact. And then the last brick in the wall was going to be a capital gains tax, which we saw David Cagle, the then finance minister in 1989, propose uh, before Labour was swept from office in 1990, just imagine if we'd managed to get in a capital gains tax, which was perhaps broad-based or low rate, or at least integrated into the income tax system. Just wash your mouth up, Bernard. Oh, it would have, it would have, um, it would have solved that problem. But the problem is now we've got such effective PAYE income tax and such effective GST income tax that we've managed to get by without taxing capital simply because the others mm. are so effective. And I wonder, Terry, whether now we've had this system embedded for so long that it's going to be almost impossible to change. Well, the Treasury has their reports over the long-term fiscal outlook. You will have seen us an, an insights briefing mm. in there. And the language they speak in, coded language, which is when you know your alarm bell should be going off, and they talk about a fiscal adjustment that is coming. We have, as you say, managed to um, get by, but we've done that in two ways. One is by holding down benefits. Uh, that There has been mm. a transfer uh, for, mm-hmm. at the Lord. Someone just told me today that the accommodation supplement, maximum amount you can save before, a person can save before you lose it, is $8,100. Wow. 
and that was last changed in 1988. We know the thresholds for income tax were last adjusted in October 2010. And very cynically, both parties mm. just quietly let those thresholds rise and not be adjusted for inflation so mm. that they could, on one hand, campaign on a promise of tax cuts, which were nothing more than inflation adjustments. So, so, so they're just relying on fiscal drag, Jerry. I mean, it was, They've just, just relied they, on I, fiscal you, drag. Yeah. Yes. You, you were talking about, about 30 years ago, because 35 years ago, 37 even, I recall being a, a, a baby working in, in Parliament, um, practically in my nappies, covering Roger Douglas coming out with GST and Rob Campbell, who at that point was the mm. uh, chief economist for the, for the Federation of Labour, totally endorsing this idea of, of, a, of a GST that was on everything, that any, any exemption from GST was regarded as a subsidy by Rob. And so that, you know, we did this. But in, in, as you say, you also then need a concomitant indexation of the benefits, don't you? Correct. Or a system under which, under which they escalate. Yes, that's right. We haven't done that. And Bill English was incredibly cynical about what happened there. The Working for Families, which, if you may recall, was, a, what was it that Sir John Key called it? Socialism? Or oh, communism by hmm. stealth. Communism by stealth. Well, that was kept. And the, but what they did do within was not adjust the thresholds hmm. at hmm. which it applied. So that means that people on fairly low minimum, now the threshold was only 42,700, above which 27% basically of your working for families is abated, called back. So that's an effective, on top of your effective tax rate. So cynical things like that have been done for the last 15 years or so. And now the, the crunch is coming. What's really put, uh, to me, what's really started to put the hammer down on the whole the squeeze, turn the vice up, is the impact of um, Cyclone Gabriel and the weather events. Mm -hmm. We now know our infrastructure just simply isn't up to scratch. And so we have to start spending on that and building that. How do we get some sort of national consensus on this, on this theory in an MMP era? You know, you had, you had, when the Longy government did this with Roger Douglas, Roger Douglas was coming out of a period of crisis and used that, you know, did not waste the good crisis. So some of this has been entrenched, but you'd, you'd need some kind of, I mean, I remember when uh, Paul Keating, it was just to show how old I am, Paul Keating and, and Bob Hawke had a, a national conference with the trade unions and business in Canberra in order to try and establish some kind of, of consensus on this. And I, I just can't see that happening in New Zealand when you've got MMP, can you? Well, MMP gets the blame on this, but I think that's a politician. In my view, I, I happened to arrive just as MMP was being voted mm. on, and I think I probably did my career no good at all when in front when a partner was railing on about it, and I just simply said in front of whole people at dinner, "Well, it hasn't done Germany any harm." Yeah. Um, so MMP gets the blame. I, I personally think politicians have sulked for thirty years about it, and I, and I think the media have just treated MMP as first past the post with variation, rather than looking at what does it really mean for our, our mm. politics and how the tradings happen. I think everyone look, was terrified of, rather than look at Germany, they probably were looking at Israel and mm. sort of minor parties. But Israel, every country is different. The real problem was we were looking at Winston Peters with um, two mobile phones. That was the thing that really was going. Well, Winston, Winston got there, but politics is always trading, horse trading. I mean, mm. what group within the right within the Labour Party were able to push Roger Douglas's faction through? Mm. And the National Party, we hear stories about a Taliban or something in there. There's a liberal wings in it. They, these are all there. If anything, in my view, 
we haven't gone far enough as MMP and we should be down to a 2% threshold. And that flushes mm. these people out into the open and we see what's on there. And and and, and just how interesting. Just mm. for something I'd love to see in the debates we're going to see coming up, I'd like all the parties to be in one debate on television, not the two main parties mm. and the mm. minor parties, because they all have to work together. And let's see that happening. And I think it's going to be different this time because at either end of the extremes, you could say the ACT or the Green Party or Te Pātou Māori are going to have a significant influence. And we should see all those five parties on stage and see how they interact with each other and how the leaders, our prospective prime ministers, the Christians, which of the Christians looks to be able to handle it live. Mm. That was the premise of Borgen, by the way. But uh, anyway. Ah, yeah. Yeah, I've always wondered why there isn't a New Zealand Borgen. I mean, if, if Denmark can do you know, fantastic detective um, shows about people going into darkened car parks and coming up with their heads chopped off, uh, or Borgen. You know, imagine, yeah, the beehive, beehive, we'd call it. Well, yeah, we could, but economically for us, our future does lie in our cultural uh, exports. Uh, in there, we still seem to be still stuck in the 30-year-old paradigm of just let's export more of something. But if you look, what makes New Zealand unique? It is Te Ao Māori. And the Pacifica, Auckland, is the largest Polynesian city in the world. Mm. It is one of the most diverse cities in the world. We have a tremendous amount of intellectual, cultural heritage here across it, which we just tap into, but we don't want to. So imagine how dull the country would be without that. But we, we, so much, we, we are so much richer. Mm. That's one of the mm. transformation. I mean, I think about, um, in a way, we're handicapped because we're English speakers. Mm. If we didn't speak English, we'd be looking more like a Denmark or a Scandinavia of the South. And I think we should be looking to those countries. Or, or maybe yeah. look at where I come from. I was born in Northern Ireland. We look at Ireland as an example, where there is a small nation, of five million, but it's a strong cultural heritage and able to make it its own way. We mm. tend to hear, think about Ireland, and we think about, oh, it's low tax rate and being uh, offshoring for multinationals, but I think we should be looking at its cultural heritage and how we could exploit that. That's also not tax. I've wandered way off point there and I'm flapping my hands around. No, 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 no. <laughs> I think I think we need to have Brett and Germain from the Flight of the Concords becoming, you know, a, a, a major contributor to GDP and Taika Waititi. There's plenty more of those stories out there. I'm positive about it. So we have tax advisor, political commentator and cultural, cultural commentator, oh, Terry Boucher. We're all Renaissance men and women here. We are indeed, but I got into writing. Here's a wee story for you. I met my wife 25 years ago this year at a writing course, and that started because I was writing film reviews for Ernst & Young's weekly magazine. So that's how it all began. Ah, good. Just finally, Terry, with your, your tax theorist hat on, I'm curious, broad-based, low rate, if we were going to tax wealth in some form, what would be the best form of broad-based, low rate? Well, I'd start probably... What can we make? The wealth taxes, the issue there is always about measurement and valuation. So that's why Associate Professor Susan and John and I have looked at this question of what we call a fair economic return, which is looking at property values. We've, we've said, right, let's take property values, residential property, exempt the first million net or net, net and then tax, apply a percentage to that. Now we have over what is it, $1.6 trillion of residential property in the country. 
So that's your starting point there is a broad base. Now, you might need to marry it alongside that thing, maybe a uh, an estate tax, because one of the weaknesses we don't talk about in our system in New Zealand is everyone knows we don't have a capital gains tax, but not every jurisdiction does. We are very unique and we don't have a wealth tax or an estate tax. And that means so capital accretion happens, which is largely untaxed. So that's how I'd start the base there. And mm. then you could look on that. It, as I said, is a trillion dollar, $1.6 trillion asset, which is relatively untaxed. And we have QV valuing it every year. So you've got a regular process, which is reliable. There'll be niggles around the margin. And I'm going to throw out something else since I was talking about it earlier. I'm probably overrunning my time. But stay, stay here. I don't see why. We have a progressive tax system which says, basically, the more you earn, more income, the higher the tax rate is because you can afford to do it. I don't see why we shouldn't be thinking about that in terms of local body rates. That if your mm. property is worth above the median, say 20% above the median, your rates are higher. Because at the moment, the percentages we apply doesn't matter whether your house is worth 500,000 mm. or 5 million. Maybe we should be thinking about that. And there you are, Wayne Brown. There's a suggestion for filling your gap. <laughs> yeah, no, that would go down well as a land banker that he is. Terry, um, lovely to see you. Thank you very much for being on the show. Uh, uh, really appreciate it. And we'll have you back again. And no doubt, I will probably see you in the lockup uh, in this coming week in the budget. It will be we never got to what I think might happen either. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, we'll save it up for the for the budget itself. Lovely to see you. Thank you. Kira. Peter, you have a skateboarding dog. Well, I, I have a skateboarding dog, which is actually also a very good Spanish story. So where I am is um, very close to the Cape of Trafalgar, or as they call it here, Trafalgar, which again is an Arabic name, of course, where Nelson um, destroyed the Spanish and French navies. The Spanish Armada was um, led at that time by the Duke of Medina Sidonia, which is more or less the area that I'm that I'm in at the moment. But there's a wonderful Spanish story, and I don't, know, I don't mean, mean to be mean about Spanish people, but a ship called the a, a naval ship called the Maldespina, which means uh, having a bad feeling in English, um, ran aground <laughs> ran, ran aground uh, off Ibiza, the DJ capital of the world, while on a mapping operation to improve <laughs> the safety of uh, navigation in the Mediterranean. So there we go. That's that's this week's. <laughs> Uh, a very bad feeling in Spanish, indeed. Yeah. Um, ahoy, Captain. Uh, <laughs> thank you very much, Peter. Lovely to see you. And um, next week you'll be back, is that right? In London. I'll be back in ah, London, London next week. Ah, yeah, I'm, I'm th having listened to, listened to Diana, I'm thinking about becoming a tax, tax exile. Ah, yeah. Well, London's a great yeah. place. You can join the, the Russians and they're all Well, I was, I was thinking maybe I could join that boat, the world, and just sail around perpetually, you know, just slightly oh, offshore. yeah. 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 With a whole bunch of other, other senior boomers. <laughs> no, that would be quite a place for the likes of our youngest to uh, go on there and um, look after the, all the boomers, perhaps. Exactly. All right, Bernard. Good to talk to you. See you later. And thank you, everybody. We shall see you all next week. Thank you very much. You've been with The Hoon. I'm Bernard Hickey uh, with co-host Peter Bale. See you all next week. Ka kite anō.